Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, let me get this announcement out of the way really quick. For those of you who subscribe to the podcast, you might want to know this. We recently, this last week, we changed hosting services. And for the most part, it went smoothly. Most subscribers shouldn't notice anything. However, if you literally don't notice anything, like not getting any episodes, you may have to resubscribe in your podcast app. Now, of course, we apologize if you have to go through that inconvenience, but you know how the interwebs can be sometimes. All right, this is episode number 95 of the next track. In previous episodes, uh, numbers 70 and 75, we talked about music in the movies and specifically fictional movies about music and music documentaries. And today we thought we'd get to the third part, and that would be concert movies. I like concert movies. Even a bad one can be worthwhile. I'll tell you, when I was younger, the place where I, where my friends and I, saw many of the films that we'll probably talk about was the Palace Concert Theater in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. Originally, this was a magnificent Lowe's movie theater with I want to say about 3,000 seats, including a very luxurious balcony. You know, big, elegant lobby and chandeliers and stuff. But by the time it was the Palace Theater in the 70s, it was pretty run down. But it was still used and being run by a local rock promoter. And when they weren't hosting rock concerts at the Palace, and I saw a lot of shows there like Lou Reed and Savoy Brown, stuff like that. um, When they weren't having the rock shows, they had these 99-cent movie nights where they showed, well, I guess you'd call it midnight movie fair, but... These would be showings two a night, usually Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, um, two shows at 7 and 10. Now, they had this huge sound system, as you can imagine, you know, these stacks of big old black speaker cabinet monstrosities on either side of the stage. You know, these big black plywood homemade-looking enclosures just stacked up really tall. And on movie nights, they'd lower a screen, and a couple of hundred people would come in and pay their 99 cents and watch some movies. And, of course, they showed, among other things, concert movies and played them really loud through that sound system. I mean, it was almost like a real concert to a degree, except it was crummy film being played too loud through a second-rate concert sound system. I first saw Yes Songs there. I saw the Grateful Dead movie, uh, you know, and some of the other movies that we'll mention. But the thing is, we didn't always see legitimate concert films. Sometimes the bill would have these... Well, I don't know. They must have been pirated films or something like that. They look like they had been really badly edited together with used footage ripped from other films. I don't know really what these montage movies were or where they came from. But what do you want for 99 cents? Now, the thing is, back then, sometimes the only way to see any live music on the cheap was through films. And we'd go watch this stuff. And quite a number of good ones, too. But this was one of the ways that we got our music fix. I, I don't have that memory at all. So for me, it was growing up in Queens, New York, and we would go to a movie theater in Forest Hills. Friday and Saturdays, they had midnight showings of movies. And sometimes it would be concert films. Sometimes it would be things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Night of the Living Dead, you know, cult films. And sometimes they'd have like Reefer Madness followed by a concert film. They they weren't often, they didn't often run for three hours. Sometimes they would have two short films. If you remember Yes Songs, it's only about 70 minutes. So that's not really enough to get people to make that sort of trip at midnight. But something like Woodstock, I believe even the original version was nearly three hours long. So we would go for these midnight showings and it was always a very, how should I say, electric atmosphere in the theater. 
And it was more of a party than anything else. But as you say, we didn't see, and, and I was in New York, and you could see live music in clubs and in, in venues like Madison Square Garden and the Palladium all the time. But you couldn't always get tickets for the shows you wanted. You couldn't always afford to keep going to all these concerts. Local bars that had music were just, I mean, they were dire. They really were. It was bad musicians. Unless they were your friends, then you'd go to support them and you know, but they were bad musicians. You had lots of drunks. And this was the disco era. So a lot of clubs were moving into disco and didn't have live music that we talked about in a previous episode about disco. And it was a way to see your favorite bands that you didn't get to see often. I, I saw Yes more often on that movie screen than I did in person. I saw them twice live back in, I think, 78. Um, so it was a way of discovering music you didn't know, of seeing bands you were familiar with, and it was a party. Right, absolutely. Party. So let me suggest, let me, let me start this conversation with what I think is a bad concert movie. Ladies and gentlemen, The Rolling Stones. Have you ever seen it? Well, in doing research for this episode, I did watch a lot of stuff on YouTube, and I saw parts of it, and it looks like it could have been a good movie. <laughs> it could have been. The, I remember it was the 72 tour that they filmed, actually four shows in Texas. And we didn't get a chance to see The Rolling Stones. No one, We were kids. So we were greatly anticipating the release of this movie, and it's awful. It was filmed in 16 millimeter and then expanded, like a lot of concert films were, because quite frankly, put it, taking on a, a filming a concert is a huge endeavor, and you had to use little equipment, you had to use multiple cameras, and it's just this, it, mostly the ladies and gentlemen of the Rolling Stones is pretty much just Mick Jagger strutting in close-up he, he does his chicken walk that's pretty much all the movie is and it was also an era when they were into the glitter thing so they yeah. had glitter makeup and it was just very disappointing it wasn't anything like uh what i expected after seeing gimme shelter which also was supposed to be a concert movie which turned into a documentary movie well it's it's interesting to make the distinction between what's a concert movie and what's a documentary i, I think woodstock is the best example and it's probably the er concert film in, in the sense that it all started there. Even though it wasn't the first, it was the one that set the bar for concert films. And there were two things that stood it apart. It was a, a compilation album in many ways because it was different performers. And you get them with the, with the festival films like the Monterey Pop, things like that. But it was also the documentary part because it was such an important cultural event. And you did have these concert films like that. And we're, we're going to discuss that because, uh, to me, there are three types of concert films. There's the straight concert. I think Yes Songs is a good example of that. There's the concert with some interviews and backstory where you just have interviews with the band here and there, but not too much. And then you get the ones with the self-absorbed footage, be it what Led Zeppelin did in Song Remains the Same with this sort of fantasy stuff or what the Grateful Dead did in the Grateful Dead movie. Or, or Shut Up and Play the Hits, the LCD sound system film of the last LCD sound system concert before they decide, before he decided to start playing again. So I, I think Woodstock is a good example of how to do that third type right, to not get it wrong, because it's all interesting, because it has, it has a narrative, because it has, it has drive, you're interested in what's happening, you've heard about what's happening, and when I saw it, I saw this in the mid-70s, years after it happened. I was in grade school when Woodstock happened. I, we did have an English teacher. I can't remember his name. And I remember when we came back to school in September, he had a beard and he wore a Nehru jacket. He had gone to Woodstock. 
<laughs> he became a convert. He did. Yet, yet he had a tie with his Nehru jacket and all that. This was a, you know, a school where I was in a private school when I was young, so the teachers had to, you know, toe a certain line. But, but I think Woodstock is an extraordinary example of a, a, an event, a concert. You know, you were talking about Gimme Shelter. It started as a concert festival film, and it became something else. But the advantage that Woodstock has is it was so well filmed, which wasn't the case, as you were saying, of many other movies. It really is too bad that, well, I mean, if you're going to make a movie of a performance or about a concert performance, you've got to do a little bit better than just throwing half a dozen handheld film cameras around the stage, around the musicians. I mean, later there were movies, well, The Last Waltz is one that I'm thinking of, where there's no question that this concert was set up to be filmed, and they were going to do a good job filming it. This was going to be documented as an event, uh, not so much like uh, as it's happening documentary like Woodstock, but as a performance event. You can certainly see the difference between something like the formality of The Last Waltz and then something like Yes Songs. I think Woodstock is probably the one that, that got people interested in the idea of the concert film. The the earlier ones, the the Monterey Pop, Gimme Shelter, uh, those probably didn't have as much mass appeal. But I think Woodstock got played in a lot of places, and it made people realize, well, hey, we can have music and get people in for the music. Of course, it was very innovative in the way it was shot. You had all the split screen shots. You had lots of cameras. I don't know how many. I think a couple dozen cameras. And you had so much to film that, what, they edited three hours out of, what, 100 hours of performance or 60, 80 hours of performance? Three days, yeah. Yeah. And, and in the recently released, I guess, director's cut updated with all the bonuses version that's on multiple discs, they've added a whole lot more footage that was never in the film of bands who weren't in the film at all. Like there's a 40-minute performance by the Grateful Dead of their song Turn On the Love Light. There's all sorts of wonderful stuff, which they just, they filmed all this stuff and they had the film, so it made sense for them to finally do something with it. Obviously, you couldn't put all that in one movie for a movie theater, and back then, you know, you had limits. And, and even even a concert that would have been two hours long, that's a lot for a concert film in, in a cinema. Another concert film that I have the memory of being long is the concert for Bangladesh. I'm not sure what year that was. I think... 72? I had the record by 74. I'm pretty sure of that. And the concert for Bangladesh was a charity concert put on by George Harrison at Madison Square Garden to raise money and awareness about the refugee problem in Bangladesh, which is the former East Pakistan. I was not and am still not particularly aware of the issues that were going on then at the time. I just wanted to see Leon Russell, who was part of this all-star band that George had put together. I was a big Leon fan, and at the time, it was also pretty exciting to see a former Beatle perform live, too. Now, I don't remember it being very popular, but uh, George does a few Beatles songs and some of his solo stuff. Ravi Shankar opened the show. Leon had a, a featured section. Eric Clapton is in the band, along with Badfinger, members of Leon's touring band, Ringo Starr, Billy Preston. And, of course, Bob Dylan was coaxed into doing five Bob Dylan songs. Yeah, that was shot in 1972, but it's only 103 minutes. It does feel like it's longer. It was a triple album. It's 99 minutes long. That's actually short for a triple album if you figure 40 minutes per disc. I remember I had it at the time. It, it was an interesting concert, as you say, because of all the musicians. Funny that you mentioned Leon Russell, because I, I probably first discovered Leon Russell in that movie. And I remember later 
wasn't he in that Mad Dogs and Englishmen film as well? Yeah, Mad Dogs and Englishmen was a movie and a soundtrack. Uh, that it, it came before Bangladesh, and it was a concert film of Joe Cocker's band and. Leon Russell was sort of the orchestra leader, right? Along with Chris Stanton and the Grease Band, which was Cocker's regular band, and that was interesting because it showed a lot of backstage stuff. Um, it comes across as like this touring musical commune. <laughs> People in the band brought their families and uh, a lot of kids running around. Uh, and as much as it rocks, it's pretty earthy. You know, these shows didn't didn't have sets and stages. You. You know, they went from town to town, from theater to theater. They wheeled the gear in, plugged it in. There's wires everywhere. Lighting was not a big concern, whatever. And like Woodstock and another movie, Last Days of the Fillmore, or sometimes it's just known as the Fillmore, uh, it's another concert movie slash documentary, essentially about Bill Graham. They used the, the, the split screen to great advantage, which is interesting a couple of times. Anyway, yeah, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but um, I do listen to the soundtrack from time to time. So another one that was pretty important, and I wouldn't really call this a concert film because it's a combination of concert and documentary, is Let It Be by the Beatles. You know, it documents the final months of the Beatles working on their final album, but it ends with that wonderful rooftop concert which is probably one of the more iconic images of the Beatles, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and and so iconic, it's been satirized and parodied and copied. Didn't you, too, do a, a rooftop performance where they attempted to get the constabulary up there and cause they a did, commotion? Yeah. yeah, they did one in Los Angeles, yeah. But th when the Beatles did that in London, it was off on a side street. I think you, two did it on some big avenue, and the cops all came because they were really it was a, a big traffic problem. So that was released in May 1970. Um, it was recorded the year before, and I guess they sort of held on to the film until after the buzz of the album had ended. You know, that's that that's probably true because it was it was hard to understand the history because I think the Beatles had already broken up when the when the movie came out. Yeah. Um but I used to, I remember that that used to screw up my history of the Beatles because I wasn't sure when Let It Be came out. Yeah. Uh, because of that. So you mentioned The Last Waltz and I think that's really interesting because it it was made by a very good filmmaker Martin Scorsese and it kind of overlapped with the Venn diagram of the concert and the interviews and the self-absorbed footage. There were interviews about the history of the band that were maybe a bit too long, but they also gave you a bathroom break. And there were a couple of songs that were filmed on a soundstage. I think they were only at the end and the beginning and the end, weren't they? The sort of instrumental tracks that they did. But for the most part, this was the sort of now classic recipe of a concert film with all sorts of guests. And there were so many guests that the band only needed to play the half dozen songs that they were really known for because they weren't known for that many hits. Um, but they got all these other musicians. And one of the backstories is that Dylan refused to be filmed and then they finally convinced him and he did, what, three songs and it was quite good. And you had everyone from Van Morrison to Neil Young, Eric Clapton. Who else was in that? Oh, uh, Muddy Waters. Yeah. Joni Mitchell. Ne Neil Diamond. Dr. John. Yep. The thing I like about The Last Waltz is it looks really good on film. And that's because it was intended to be a filmed performance. Unlike something like Yes Songs, where you just unload a film crew and shoot the show. This was done specifically for film. And it was good because they were able to make concessions 
for the film crew and the recording of it. Right, and that's a good point, because what Scorsese did is they planned the seating around the cameras where the cameras were going to be, whereas most other concert films, they just stuck the cameras where they could fit them. Yeah. Regular listeners know I live just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon. The Royal Shakespeare Company has theaters here, and I regularly go when they film their productions because they broadcast them live in cinema, and I've become friendly with the guy who produces the film, so he gives me tickets, and I get to sit down behind the cameras. So they've taken out most of the the seats on the ground level, what they call the stalls, and they're only leaving enough seats so that they'll be in the line of sight for the cameras, right? So that it's a thrust stage, which means that the audience sits on three sides. And so they want the cameras to be able to see the audience behind them from the different angles, but they eliminate most of the other seats. And this is a lot of preparation. You've got cameras on dollies. You've got a camera on a boom I mean, there's three cameras on dollies on the ground level. There's one camera on a boom, there's a fixed camera, and there's one or two up on the next level up. So if you put that in a concert hall, you're blocking a lot of people, and you can't really do it easily unless you've planned ahead. Now, the last waltz was at Winterland, which isn't a very large space, so they must have set up the, the kind of little towers that you see in outdoor concerts, kind of scaffolding that they set up. They probably did that just to get the cameras eight or ten feet off the floor, so no one would be in the way, and so they could get good angles. You know, we keep talking in terms of film and filming, but of course, film is rarely, if ever, used anymore. Videotape was starting to be used in the 70s, and then in the 80s, digital video. But movies like Woodstock were shot on film cameras, which... That, that you had to reload. Exactly. Very cumbersome. But with video, the cameras could be smaller, somewhat cheaper. Editing was a lot easier. So what started happening was bands and their record labels started producing videos themselves. And the concert movie kind of well, started to disappear as more videos became available. And I don't think it was until the Talking Heads movie stopped making sense in the mid-80s that the concert movie was rejuvenated. Yeah, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a Rolling Stone article, Reader's Poll, the best concert movies of all times. And they put Stop Making Sense at number three with The Last Waltz at number one and The Song Remains the Same at number two, which, frankly, The Song Remains the Same is really not that good. But what I find surprising is the description of the film here that it was directed by Jonathan Demme. And the article says that he and the Talking Heads refused to show the audience until the end of the film, which is true. Linger on static shots to keep attention on David Byrne's physicality, which is true. Eliminate all colored lights and make no attempt to obscure the work of stagehands. Well, no, that's the way the tour was conceived. That's not That wasn't done for the film. This was a film of a tour. It wasn't a concert stage for the film. And it says, on top of all that, the set list is constructed, so the band is slowly assembled piece by piece over the course of the first six songs. This was the concert. I saw them in the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium perform this. This was the tour that they did for months, and Demi filmed what they did. They really didn't make this for the film, but... It turns out to be a very compelling way to present a concert on film as well as when you're there in person. Well, you know what's really interesting? After I saw Stop Making Sense, I saw the tour also, and I, of course I've seen the film. It reminded me of another film from 1970, a very short film uh, called The Bolero. It was a, uh, uh, a concert by the L.A. Philharmonic conducted by Zubin Mehta. And the first part of the film is the orchestra and Maida discussing, you know, how they're going to perform it. But then there's the actual performance of the Bolero by Ravel. And as you may know, starts with one or two instruments and then gradually more instruments are added. And it was a compelling film because 
the orchestra was essentially introduced as the uh, the piece progressed. And I often wonder if David Byrne had seen that film and got the idea of, uh, you know, introducing the members of the band one by one, slowly but surely, as the concert progressed. Just an idea. Yeah, there's a lot of close-ups. I, I watched it, of course, in preparation for this episode. There's a lot of close-ups of the musicians and even close-ups of the bows on the violins and the fingers on the clarinets and all that. It is a bit innovative in its own way, and it would have been interesting if the musicians actually walked on as each one was added to the thing. But through the magic of YouTube, I came across a bolero flash mob playing in a shopping center in Leeds played by the Opera North Orchestra, and it's exactly that. The, the guy comes out with a snare drum and sets it up in this big open space in, in the center of the shopping mall, curiously right in front of an Apple store. And he starts doing the thing, and then a flutist comes and pulls the food out of her backpack and starts playing. And then all the musicians come from all different places, and there's like this one great shot of this double bass player coming down the escalator <laughs> playing his bass, <laughs> which is really funny. Yeah. And and there are a few hundred people watching. It's one of these things where there's like the upper level's kind of a balcony over this open space and people filming and watching. And that was really fascinating because they're all just pulling instruments out of their bags and joining the group as it goes on. It does have a... I've always liked the flash mob, the idea of a flash mob, but this one's nice because, again, each one comes one at a time instead of a whole bunch of people just, like, taking off their coats and starting to dance or something like that. I wonder if they got the idea for doing it that way from Stop Making Sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, we'll, well introduce them this way. But, it, but it's hard to not think of that with the bolero because it is a sort of slow accretion of, of instrument after instrument. It really is the ideal piece of music for that. You mentioned earlier, though, that there was a time that the concert movie kind of stopped being relevant. And this, of course, is when MTV came around. Exactly. No longer did we need to go to a midnight show and brave the smoke to see our favorite band on a screen. You could watch them on TV 24 hours a day. And while they weren't all live performances, many music videos were live performances, um, either real live performances or a band lip syncing doing a live performance. You know, another thing that, and this isn't really, these aren't really concert films, but I remember during the 70s, there were several television programs on the weekend here in the United States um, that featured live performances. Um, there was In Concert, there was Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, and then there was the Midnight Special, which I guess Midnight Special was shot in a studio. But Don Kirshner's Rock Concert and In Concert, which I think was a Dick Clark production, would actually go to a venue and videotape. Uh, these shows, and again, it's videotape replacing film, a lot cheaper to use, a lot cheap, a lot smaller, and a lot easier to do in a mobile sort of situation where you just bring the truck, set it up, videotape it, have one guy on stage, maybe two guys on stage with mobile cameras, and that was about it. But around that time, you still had concert films, and one that I was watching on YouTube this morning was YouTube Live at Red Rocks. And this was really interesting because there's Bono with a mullet, no glasses. There's Edge without a hat. In the Red Rocks Amphitheater, which, what, holds a few thousand people. It's not that big, but it's this wonderful site. It's all shot in video. A, a lot of these sort of shots where the camera's angled 30 degrees or something um, to make it look cool. But what you notice is how many times the cameramen or camera women are actually getting in the way, not of the performers, but sometimes you see them very close to a performer on stage from another angle or moving in front of the stage and all that they were really intrusive and and that's something that you wouldn't get with like the last waltz because w when you've got these handheld video cameras you have to get relatively close 
when you've got good film cameras with better lenses, you can be further away and still get close-up shots. It makes you wonder if there are, if it's really a concert performance if they've got camera people running around. I mean, I suppose, like we were saying, that the last waltz was purposely done for filming. But then I wonder if this, why would you want the audience to, to see all of this? If you're filming it, it, it kind of takes away from the performance, doesn't it? Well, it depends on whether the audience is aware beforehand that it's going to be filmed. When I go to the theater here, you know that it's going to be a film performance and, and you're warned. And honestly, if you're not sitting in the seats that they don't sell behind the cameras, the cameras probably won't annoy you too much. But I've been to a number of concerts that have been filmed and, and it depends on how it's set up. Sometimes the cameras are just well positioned and they're discreet and, and they're not going to be on tracks and they're not going to have a boom camera. But nowadays, you know, again, you, you've got if you've got the budget to film something, you can have really good lenses so you don't have to be too close. You might have one guy on the stage with a steady cam or or one person on each side and you don't really see them that much. The Grateful Dead movie was shot in October 1974 and it was shot during five shows that were supposed to be the, 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 the last shows the Grateful Dead was performing. They were announced a retirement, which ended up being a hiatus of a year and a half. And you do occasionally see one of the camera people on the side of the stage, but they don't get in the way. There's plenty of shots from the stage where you see the people in front of the stage, and you don't see any cameras there. So they must have set them up in places where they had good telephoto lenses and it didn't get in the way. And, and I think it really depends on, on the performance and, and the budget. This was shot in film. They had a pretty large amount of money to shoot it. You know, the, the U2 at Red Rocks looks pretty amateurish or let's say semi-pro. It doesn't look that good. It was an interesting performance, but it's not something that you would really, you, you would look at the, that today as a historical document more than anything else. Bono was certainly hopped up. He's full of energy, kind of does his Mick Jagger impersonation. But this is back, you know, before Bono became Bono. So you mentioned some concert movies that are bad. And, and I wanted to mention, too, that for me, fail in, in different ways. One is The Cure in Orange. They played in the, the uh, an old Roman amphitheater in Orange in the south of France. And it's just drab and boring and the lighting is too dark. And it's just like it's kind of like the Yes songs of 80s concert films. And, and this is Robert Smith without the, the, the makeup and the hair and all this. And it was just, it's really boring. But I think the worst to me, conceptually, I mean, there are plenty of badly filmed concert films, but the worst for me is Pink Floyd at Pompeii because it's a concert film without an audience. Yeah, I've never liked that movie at all. And remember earlier I mentioned that we would see these bogus concert films that were edited from other movies and Inevitably, there was always something stolen from Pink Floyd at Pompeii or maybe one or two scenes from, from uh, The Song Remains the Same. For some reason, I think they always they always ripped off Dazed and Confused. Isn't that the one where Jimmy Page is playing with a bow? Yeah. And he's climbing a mountain or something. And it seems to me I always saw that that scene was always shown. But you're absolutely right. Pink Floyd at Pompeii is just a it's, – it's not a good movie. <laughs> I don't know anything else to say about it. It's no, just – it's not. It's just the – the, the idea is just so strange. You know, if they had people there, it would have been interesting. You know, you can see they're really serious about the music, but they just might as well have been in an indoor studio. The sound would have been better. Just one that I would like to give an honorable mention to, which is a fun film. It's called Festival Express. It was filmed around, I think, 1970. Some Canadian promoter got a bunch of musicians to 
do a, a sort of a trip from, I think, Toronto over to the West Coast, like a 10-day a train trip. So they had this train that was to them, and they had the Grateful Dead and the band and Janis Joplin and a bunch of other, Delaney and Bonnie, a bunch of other musicians. I'd never heard of that. And you'd never heard of this. No. I think I think it's on Netflix. And it's just a wonderful thing because you see them first, it starts out, and they're like, they don't know what's happening, and then they get the booze out, and then they're jamming, and there's like a blues car and a folk car, and they're having a great time. And there's only a few concert scenes because at one of the venues, the, the, all these people wanted to break down the fences saying that it, the, it, the music should be free and... And Jerry Garcia is like, oh, come on, man, let's figure out a way to do this and all. And then there's a really good Janis Joplin performance one evening, but they ended up canceling like the last few concerts of it. But what remains is this really wonderful trip, which is it, you know, sometimes these documentaries about musicians are all like, okay, the musicians are pretending. And here, I don't think there's any interviews. It's really just the musicians doing what they're doing and having a hell of a great time playing music together. I will have to look for that one. I had not heard of that at all. Yeah, I bought this on DVD 10, 15 years ago when it was released. on. It, it had been like locked in a vault forever, maybe because of rights issues. And it was maybe 15 years ago that it got released. And, and I think it's on one of the streaming services. If I can find where, I'll put it in the show notes. It's, it is really amazing, though, speaking of finding things on Netflix. If you just enter concert in the search at Netflix, you'll get all kinds of garbage. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, it's an amazing array of, you know, failed publicity films and, uh, stuff that was recorded, probably never planning to see the light of day and repurchased and relicensed and re-edited. There's just so much stuff that it just isn't very good. And so it's, it's, it's nice that we were able to find a couple of really, really good concert films that actually still hold up. I mean, even Woodstock still holds up as a, as a historical, uh, document. Woodstock is worth watching, if only for Soul Sacrifice and Michael Shreve on drums. Yeah, <laughs> that is one of the most exciting moments in in the entire film. Yeah. All right, before we wrap things up, we're going to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to? So this week, my next track is going to be a Jerry Garcia band release that was just out a couple weeks ago. It is May twentieth, nineteen ninety, at Hilo Civic Auditorium. The Jerry Garcia Band is Jerry's side project that he started in the early 70s when he was playing with the Dead. And he just had such a Jones for playing music, among other Joneses, that when the Dead wasn't on tour, he still had to do something. And he did some acoustic shows and he did shows with a, an electric band and with singers. And then he did a, a stint on Broadway. I think it was in 1987. He did like 10 days at a theater on Broadway, kind of what Springsteen's been doing recently. And so Jerry Garcia's family has slowly been drip-feeding releases of live recordings, not that there aren't hundreds that circulate in bootlegs, but this is the 10th volume of their Garcia Live series, and there have been a couple dozen others before this. And it's just hot. Jerry was on when he was a solo performer. He starts out with How Sweet It Is, then he does They Love Each Other, which is one of his songs. He does My Sisters and Brothers, which is, I think, a gospel song. Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door, Forever Young, Tangled Up in Blue. He always did a lot of Dylan songs in his solo stuff. Most of the songs he does solo are covers, actually. There are a few Garcia or Dead songs, but most are covers, and they're jazzy and they're rocky, and it's just fun. And this is a two-hour, 15-minute, 18-track album. It's wonderful. So if you like The Dead and you haven't listened to much of the Jerry Garcia band, this is a great way to check them out. Doug, over to you. 
Well, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I'll be listening to Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishman soundtrack. As I mentioned, I occasionally give this album a listen. I listened to it a lot more, though, when it first came out. Now, if all you know about Joe Cocker is You Are So Beautiful and any number of other square hits he had later, his first few albums were pretty rockin'. Mad Dogs and Englishman is only his third major release, and, of course, it's live performances of some really great songs. He covers The Stones... Traffic, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen in his inimitable vocal style. And the band is extraordinarily good. As we mentioned, it was mostly recruited by Leon Russell and included people he had worked with when he played with Delaney and Bonnie and members of uh, Cocker's regular band, particularly uh, keyboardist Chris Stanton. A couple of songs from this album were hits themselves. The Letter, Cry Me a River, Delta Lady, Leon Russell's Superstar, debuted here, which was later a hit for the Carpenters. So the album is really chock full of good stuff and uh, certainly captures that that just post-Woodstock era. Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishman, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>